you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 till the uh, end of the chapter, verse 34. So give ear, this is God's word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we, are ju- if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we, we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. This is God's word. Well, how many of you have seen uh, Wiley Coyote in the Roadrunner? Right. Okay. So, just to summarize it, Wiley wants so badly to eat this Roadrunner. He is so desperately hungry that he will go to any length to devise all manner of schemes to catch the Roadrunner and to eat him. Okay. And if you've ever seen it, it's crazy. I mean, this guy's—he really is a super genius with all the things that he does. Every now and again. He straps himself onto a rocket, okay? He lights the rocket and shoots off. Like sometimes he doesn't even make it. Something bad, the rocket blows up or whatever. But sometimes he actually goes and he's zooming down, right? And he catches up. You know, in, in a single screen, you got the Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote, and he's catching up, right? You, you know what I'm saying? And so, and he's getting really close and he pulls out the knife and fork and he's about to dig in. And what does the Roadrunner do? Yeah, he goes, me, me, and he kicks it into high gear, right? And boom, he's gone. He is gone. And I'm wondering, like, why doesn't the Roadrunner always run that fast? I mean, maybe he's teasing the, the, the coyote, right? He's te- teasing Wiley. But the point is that the Roadrunner has this extra gear, this other gear that just comes out of nowhere, and he's gone, right? It just it, it accelerates him into high speed. This is how communion works in the Christian life. Okay? This is how the Lord's Supper ought to work in your life. Okay, communion should kick our experience of the gospel 
into high gear. Okay, if it doesn't, that's why we're talking about it. Okay, we're going to look at that today. The better you understand the gospel, actually the more meaningful and powerful communion becomes. But the flip side's true also. The more you understand communion, the more richly you will experience the gospel. Okay, today we're going to finish. We, have, we started two weeks ago on communion. We're going to finish today our short series just by looking at two questions. We're going to look at who should come to communion, and then we're going to look at how often should we celebrate communion. Okay, so who and how often. And we're going to answer these questions with three points today. Okay, those are the points there in your outline. You can fill in the blanks here. Um, we're going to look first at who can come. Second, how often should we come? And then third, how do we keep it real? How do we keep it real? And so first, who can come? Boy, in this passage, man, Corinth is a mess. Okay, this church is a mess. I mean, you see how Paul is dealing with them, right? Pretty, pretty rare for Paul. Uh, there's a mess going on in the church about communion. Verse 17, Paul says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. And when you come together at the Lord's table, it's not a blessing at all. It's actually a curse. Verse 20, Paul says, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. So they're observing communion. Paul's saying, that's not communion. Verse 22, he says that you are despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. And then verse 27, they're eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Okay, these are the highlights. I mean, this is what was going on was really bad. And it's not just that what was going on was bad, but the consequences are bad too. Verse 27, again, you, they are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Think about that. The very death that communion proclaims they are incurring guilt over it because of what they're doing. Verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So Paul is saying when you eat and drink, judgment's coming on you, not blessing. Verse 30, Paul says, that's why so many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. You see that? Paul is saying because of the way they're acting in communion. Some of them are weak and sick and some of them have died. Man. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? Maybe we shouldn't do communion anymore. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, we've been looking in this series on Sunday worship, right? In a life of worship, communion is the fourth stage of our covenant renewal service, right? This is the fourth act as we renew our relationship with God. And um, this is really where the consequences of the covenant are rehearsed and experienced. Okay, we've talked about the positive blessings of communion, but in this passage, we see the real curses. There's guilt, there's judgment, even sickness and death for despising God's church and humiliating others. These are all negative consequences of the covenant. Okay? 
So when we talk about the covenant, it's not just the blessings, but also the Lord's Supper brings both the positive and the negative aspects of the covenant. If you despise God's covenant, if you're not in God's covenant. And so what's interesting is that as we see these things, all these negative consequences, they're designed to get everyone to come and commune with Jesus in the right way. Okay? Paul doesn't say, stop doing this. Paul actually says, look, do it the right way. Right? Come to the Lord's table. Come to communion. But leave your place of judgment. You don't have to stay in that place where you're being judged. Where you're doing it in an unworthy manner. Where you're despising God and His covenant. Where you're despising and humiliating others. Instead, it's an invitation to come into God's family. It's an invitation to, if you're in God's family, to observe communion and experience the blessings. You don't have to stay in that place of curse. Okay, that's what Paul is calling them to. So what exactly was going on? Let me give you a little bit of, of, of just first century history here. Um, the early church met in homes. Okay, that's where they met. They didn't have buildings. There weren't enough of them. And then when there were enough of them, they met in homes. In ancient homes, dining rooms, they were roughly like 18 feet by 18 feet. So, you know, in an average home, that's about the size of a dining room. You know, big enough for a table and some chairs. So you're not banging into the walls. You know, but you could probably seat about 9 to 12 guests. Okay? And if you invited more people than that, the way that they would have dinners is that the rest of the folks would sort of overflow into the center courtyard. Okay? Houses were sort of built in a square with a center courtyard. And so you have a dining room for 9 to 12, and then everybody else spills out. And a lot of the courtyards could seat 30 to 50 guests. Okay? And so, and it was normal for the host to have his special guests sit in the dining room. Right? Places of honor, that's where they got to sit, and everybody else were, it was in the courtyard. Okay? Now, socially speaking, this was a time where there was a real strong sense of class. Okay? You had the rich, you had the poor, you also had freed and slaves. And so it was common for rich folks to eat lavish meals together while their servants or slaves were serving the meals and then either got the crumbs that were left over or they had to eat, I mean, just something that was much, much like, they just got bread and water to eat. Now, the travesty was that the church, the folks in the church, had been observing the Lord's Supper in that way. They had taken their social norms. They had taken their sense of class distinction, their sense of, you know, even slaves, and they were treating the church, as though it operated in the same way. Look at verse 21. Paul says, Therefore in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. The wealthy, the privileged guests were acting like their privileged status made them more important in the church. They sat down in the dining room and they just went after it. And what was happening was they were eating food that was causing some who were out in the courtyard to get nothing. So you have some people show up for church. They have the Lord's Supper. And they were, when they did it, it was, it was actually a full meal. That was the way they observed the Lord's Supper when, when they had communion. Um, it was a full meal. And so what was happening, I mean, just picture a potluck. And you got the folks inside scooping giant helpings on their plates because that's how they're used to eating. And you got folks outside who literally are getting nothing. 
There's folks inside who are drinking so much wine they're getting drunk. And the folks outside get nothing. They were treating brothers and sisters in God's family like they were slaves. I mean, how would you feel if you came to church and someone, I mean, handed you a broom and said, here you go, right? And then sat down and ate, right? Or, or you know, let's make sure you sit way up in the back. And if there's some left over, well, then you can come. They were treating people like slaves. And Paul is so concerned because this denies the gospel. This denies the good news of Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no distinction for people between people who call themselves Christians. Okay? That we are all one family. We partake of one loaf of bread. That's the image that we saw two weeks ago. Our lives converge. We are all the same in the sense that we have all sinned and we all fall short of God's perfect standard. None of us are perfect. And because we're all not perfect, we all stand before God in exactly the same place. And we're all trusting in Jesus for our salvation. So there is no difference between us. And so there is no rich or poor in the church. There is no slave or free in the church, and especially at the Lord's table. So thinking about this, how does this apply to us? Well, Communion is a time when we are celebrating our union with Jesus and our union as a family, right? That we are a family. So we need to make sure that when we come together as a church, when we come together at the Lord's table, we act like a family. You know, Paul is saying, verse 28, he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This means to check your heart. Do you think that you're better than anybody else who's here? Does your life indicate that you think you're better than anybody else here? Think about too, like, do you think your needs are more important than other people's needs here? And these are the questions that we ask, because it's easy to say, no, I don't think I'm better, and yet my needs are more important, (laughs) right? I mean, we just have this sense, like, that's part of who we are. You know, we tend... We tend to be selfish. We tend to focus like, well, if I don't take care of my needs, who else will? Right? I mean, that's the hope, right? If you can get to that place, then you can actually put someone else's needs ahead of yours. Verse 29, Paul says that we need to discern the body and blood of the Lord. Okay, and in this context, it means you need to remember and really think about the fact that Jesus died for everyone in the church. Right for all those who name the name of Jesus. We're a family of equals, and so we owe each other love and respect. That's what we owe each other. And so, practically, we treat each other as equals, and we share what we have. So we don't observe the Lord's Supper in the same way. Like, we don't have a full meal when we do communion. Okay, so we can't really sin in exactly the same way that they were sinning. But, you know, maybe at the refreshment table... But where are the kids, actually? Why do we send the kids out before the sermon, right? We need to encourage the kids, right? We see the kids, and, you know, some of them, like, they got plates full of stuff, and 
and then other people don't get any. I'm, you know, I mean, they're kids, so we obviously are gracious to them. But, um, but that's the mentality. We've got to make sure that we're not taking, but we're sharing, and we're making sure that everybody's needs are being met. And that's, that's the goal. And so who can come? Who can come to the Lord's table? It's, it's people who are trusting in Jesus. Okay? It's people that, are, that, that, that say, I mean, by coming, you're saying, I need Jesus' death and his resurrection for me. I need his body and his blood for me. Now, this doesn't mean the perfect are only allowed to come, but the repentant can come. Okay? It's not for those without sin, but those who are confessing their sins. And that's the requirement. You're trusting in Jesus. You're confessing your sins. That qualifies you to come. And so if you're not a Christian, well, the invitation to you is every time we have communion is that you could become one. To not come is to say, you know what, I'm not trusting in Jesus. I I either don't need Jesus or I don't know enough about Jesus yet to be willing to commit to him. And what's great is that even if you don't come forward and take the bread and the juice, even if you don't do that, you can take the Jesus that the bread and the juice symbolize. Right? You can receive Jesus even today. You can walk out of here. I mean, what that means is just saying, Lord, I know, God, I know I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. Jesus died for my sins. And if you accept me because of that, I'll trust Jesus for my salvation. If you confess Jesus is now my Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can do that today. Now, I want to talk a little bit. What about children? We talked about children at the refreshment table. What about children at the Lord's table? Um, Well, they are part of God's family. That's why we baptize them. Um, In this passage... It's interesting, Paul indicates in verse 29 that he wants those who take communion to be able to discern the body and blood of the Lord. Okay? That means you have to understand the basics of communion. And so, at Harbor, here's what we do. And this is part of where we're part of a, of a denomination that practices this. We wait until children are able to articulate their own faith. Okay? So, once a child is able to express their own faith in Jesus and then understand the basics of communion, then they're ready to come. Okay, that's how it works. And there's no set age for this, right? It could be 13, it could be 8, it could be earlier. I mean, a lot of it really depends on on the child, it depends on the parents. Um, And so the way the process works is that if you feel like your child is ready to take the Lord's Supper, if you feel like your child is able to express their own faith in Jesus, that they... Um, understand enough about Jesus to where they're trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins, and you see evidence of the Spirit's work in their life. This is where it gets a little bit subjective, right? Um, No child will exhibit constant, you know, evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, okay? Um, But if you see spontaneous acts of love every now and again, right? If you see them really sorry for some of the things that they do. Again, not all the time, but I mean, those are signs of the Spirit's work, right? We're talking about age-appropriate signs that the Holy Spirit is inside of them. 
you see those things, and you can talk to the elders, you can talk to me about it, we can talk about how to understand what that, what, you know, what that looks like. Um, so when you think your child is ready, then the way it works in our church is that you will just, just let me know or let one of our elders know, and we will interview you as parents just to have a, we'll have a conversation. It's not really an interview. We'll have a conversation with you about what you see, what are the signs, and about your child's faith. Okay, we're going to try to understand what is it that, how, how, how does your child express his or her faith? You know, what are the words that you use? Because the next step is that, that we'll interview your child. Okay, we sit down with your child and we try to make it really relaxed because, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, with some of the kids, if they're, you know, they can get freaked out. I remember when Jamie was going in. Ooh, hey, Jamie. Um, maybe I won't tell the story. Never mind. Um, she was afraid to meet with the elders, but they were all dressed in suits and there were a bunch of them. And so we try to make it really easy. But so what we do is we sit down with your child and we'll ask them questions like, do you believe that you were made by God? Do you believe that you're a sinner? For you, what does sin mean? Like, what ways do you sin? Because we want to make sure they understand sin, right? And if they understand that they sin and how they sin, that's, that's good. That's what we're looking for. And then we ask them, does God have to punish sin? You know, just to get them, to, do they understand the consequences of their sin? Again, they don't have to have a theologian's description of sin and its consequences, but do they get the fact that God punishes sin? Um, and then what did God do to forgive your sins? You know, do you believe that Jesus came? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Do you believe he died for your sins and rose from the dead? You know, we walk them through a conversation that helps us understand, do they believe that there's a God? Do they believe they're sinners? Do they understand the consequences of sin? Do they understand what Jesus did for them? Right? And then we'll ask them, is Jesus your king? Are you going to follow King Jesus? Are you going to try with all of your might and trusting in God's power in you are you going to try to follow Jesus for your whole life? You know, and then we'll ask him, like, do you care about the church? You know, what ways do you think you might be able to help harbor to grow and to be a better place? You know, and just, we'll just have a conversation. They don't have to have, like, ready answers for this stuff, but at least for that, that piece. But that's what we do. That's how it works, okay? And so, and when, if your child can articulate an age-appropriate expression of their faith, then we will welcome them to the Lord's Supper, We'll love them to come in and we'll serve them the Lord's Supper. And so if you have questions on that, um, we'll have Tina, um, who's our children's church director, we'll have her send out an email to all the parents this week. Um, But yeah, if you want, you can talk to me, you can talk to her, and we can give you more information about how that works. So that's who should come. Who should come. Now second, how often should we come? How often should we have communion? Okay, well, let's see what the text says. Verse 26, Paul says there, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so he says, "How as often as you do this. You know, and so this speaks to what you do when you observe the Lord's Supper. right? As often as you do it, this is what's happening. But how often did they celebrate communion? Look at verse 17. Paul says there, when you come together, okay? He says, because when you come together, okay, that's, then verse 18 shows us what that means when you come together. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, 
Okay, so what Paul is saying here is there's this phrase when you come together is Paul's way of talking about when you gather for worship. Okay, so when you come together as the church, then look at verse 20. When you come together, he says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Like you're doing something and Paul's criticizing their observance of the Lord's Supper. But what we're seeing here is that when the church came together, it was celebrating communion. When the church came together, as often as they came together, they were observing the Lord's Supper. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper when they came together as a church, as often as they gathered. And I mean, what this means is they were doing this every week. They were doing this every week. In Acts 2, there's some indications in in verse 42 to 47, they may have been doing it every day. It says daily they were breaking bread together in their homes. Now, this idea of observing the Lord's Supper or, or having communion every week, it makes sense in terms of covenant renewal, right? If you look back on, uh, on, uh, you know, to our diagram on the, on the stages of covenant renewal worship, right, this fourth stage where God reviews and we experience the consequences of the covenant, the way that we do that is in communion. The Lord's Supper is how God wants us to understand the consequences of the covenant. And so, because if you believe in Jesus, then through his death and resurrection, God gives you the blessings of the gospel. And that's what you receive at communion. Okay, and if you don't believe yet, then you don't have the blessings of forgiveness. You don't have the blessings of the inner healing and the transformation. And you're in a place where if you stay there, the curses of the covenant will come upon you. And so it's like a weekly reminder, not just of the good news of Jesus, but how important it is for us to commune with him. And so it's part of covenant renewal services. And I think about that, and I think, you know, if communion seals and guarantees our union with Jesus, if it's the reenactment of us being together as one family, why wouldn't we want to have communion every week? Do you want to just hear about the blessings of the gospel or would you like to experience them in communion? Well, there's two main objections. There's lots of flavors of objections, but I think there's two main objections that churches deal with as they move toward weekly communion, okay? as they move you know, to practicing it every week. Uh, the two main objections are, really, we've never done it this way before, and secondly, that weekly communion will turn communion into an empty ritual. And so I want to deal with those two in this point. First, we've never done it this way before. Sometimes that can be a reason to continue the way we're doing it, and sometimes it's not. Let me spend like three minutes giving you just a real brief history on how the church has dealt with the frequency of communion. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little history lesson here. Okay, so... Um, Records of the early church indicate that communion was celebrated every week. Okay, the church in the scriptures and the early church. Well, but by the 1700s, in our church history, the practice actually had been moved to celebrating communion once a year. Okay, communion was being celebrated once a year. And this was really three, there were three main reasons why communion became less frequent. Okay, first, there were a lot of people who thought that communion doesn't actually do anything. So why have it? Um, secondly, there were people that who wanted to distance themselves from the abuses of communion in the Roman Catholic Church and the Episcopal Church, the Church of England. 
Okay, and so that also caused people to want to do it less and less often because, oh, it's those Catholics who do it every week, and we don't want to be like them. So that was another reason. And then this, these two things combined with a third that was really more practical, that there were a lot of places, honestly, where the poverty was so bad, bread was scarce. And so there wasn't enough bread to be able to have communion every week. Plus, there weren't enough pastors available to serve communion at all the churches. Okay? I mean, in our church, you need to have a pastor to be able to observe the Lord's Supper, to have communion. And there weren't enough pastors to hit all the churches. And so you had re- actually revolved like pastors that were like itinerant ministers who would go around and they would hit places. And in some places, they would only get there once a year and they would observe communion then. Now, that, ha- that history is what we inherited in our country. We inherited that in the United States. And what it turned out was that um, we ended up adopting these infrequent communion observances with something that were, that were called communion seasons, where, okay, if we're going to have communion once a year or twice a year, well, we got to get ready for this, right? we got to build up for this. And so you'd have communion seasons where people would feel really close to God, and then they'd have communion, and then they would sort of fall off afterwards and experience incredible dry periods in their lives until the next time when the season of communion would come around. And, I mean, it's really true that infrequent communion can establish sort of like a sine wave pattern, you know, where you feel close to God and then far away and close to God and far away. So in our denomination, in our book of church order, which is our bylaws, um, it says that we can celebrate communion. It says we are to celebrate communion frequently as the session, the elders of the church determine. Okay, And at Harbor, we have sites that celebrate communion monthly, like we've been doing that. We also have a site that celebrates it weekly. And so we have latitude to do this. This is part of our bylaws. Um, and it seems like if this is the practice in Scripture, if this is part of how God wants to renew his covenant with us every week, then again, why wouldn't we want to do this every week? Well, this leads to the other objection. All right, objection number two is that if we do this every week, won't it become an empty ritual or meaningless? If you feel that way, I'm glad you do because we have a whole third point to answer it. How do we keep it real? How do we keep communion to be a blessing? Because if we do this every week, won't it become an empty ritual? Won't it lose its meaning? It's just going to become something that, oh, we just go through the motions toward the end of every service and blah, blah, you know. Um, The simple answer is no. It will not turn into an empty ritual. So let's pray. We're done. I'm just kidding. kidding. (laughs) My experience has actually been the opposite. In Presbyterian churches especially, the more you take communion, the better it gets. Okay? The churches that really promote a deep understanding of what goes on at communion are those churches that want to do it. It's like the more you understand it, the more you say, can we do it more often? You know, can we do it every week? Because I I don't want to miss out on that. Um, and so let me, let me walk you through, because I think the key to understanding why or, or how to keep it real is to think about the sermon, okay? Think about the sermon. We preach a sermon every week, right? But does the sermon become an empty ritual or lose its meaning? You got to know how nervous I was to, like, think about asking that question. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Lord willing, by God's grace, by his spirit, please, Jesus, make me a better preacher. Um, 
I mean, every week we look at the same Bible, right? But we look at different parts of the Bible, okay? Every week we're talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, where the whole Bible culminates. But usually we're talking about different aspects of the work of Jesus, different blessings that come from salvation. It's kind of like the facets of a diamond, right? We look at different portions of the Bible, different facets of what Jesus, who he was, what he does. You know, some, some weeks it's Jesus on us. Some weeks it's Jesus in us, right? We understand that the gospel is, it changes everything. And so there better be stuff that's new every week, right? Because otherwise, man, we're not going to really plumb the depths of how Jesus wants his gospel to work in us. And so that's why the sermon doesn't lose, it doesn't become rote or meaningless because we're looking at different aspects of what we're preaching. This is our constitution. We pull out different sections of it each week, look at it, apply it, explain it, and then see how it points to Jesus. It's the same thing with communion. It's the same thing with communion. This is going to be new for some of you, okay? So I really want you to to try to pay attention, understand this, because we're going to be doing this every week. Um, when we observe communion every week, we actually experience different, different parts of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to experience different blessings each and every week and how they apply to us. Okay? This is where communion will actually expand your understanding of the gospel. Okay? Communion will help you grow. It will make you realize, wow, I didn't know the gospel was going to touch that area of my life. Wow, I didn't know that Jesus cared about that area so much that he would be actually willing to come into me to fix it, right? So what do I mean? Well, you want to ask yourself every week, you want to ask yourself, what do I need from Jesus? What do you need from Jesus? As you sit there right now, what do you need from Jesus? You know, sometimes you need the blessings that are described in the sermon, Okay, you hear a sermon about the holiness of God and you feel like, wow, first of all, I'm unholy. You know, and then you think, man, I want to grow to become more like Jesus, more holy. And so what I need from Jesus is I need him to cleanse my unholiness and I need him to fill me with his holiness so I can be more holy, right? That's what you get when you come forward. You come forward and the blood of Jesus washes you away, washes away all your unholiness. And then the body of Jesus comes inside you and makes you more holy, gives you his strength, right? When promises are offered in the sermon that you need, when you come, you come and receive the Jesus who brings those promises to you. Do you understand that? And so communion actually takes the blessings that are preached about, the blessings from God's word, from the sermon, and says, this is true for you. If you need strength, to follow me in this. Jesus says, I'm coming in you to give you strength. If you need forgiveness because you haven't been this way, let me wash you and make you clean. Does that make sense? Do you understand that? That's, I mean, this is huge. So whatever you hear in terms of the sermon, the, the communion actually applies it. It seals it. It guarantees that you have those things because it's saying as real as this bread is, as real as this juice is, that's how real Jesus is in you. Now, Sometimes, sometimes your needs are not addressed in the sermon. Okay, sometimes you're coming in and you're struggling, you're hurting, you've got you know, pain that you're dealing with, you're suffering, you've got a bad relationship, you have no idea what to do with your life, you have no idea what to do about a situation, and the sermon doesn't go anywhere near that, right? 
when that's happening, when we come to the Lord's table, then you say, what do I need? I mean, sometimes you say, you know what? I didn't know I needed this, but I really needed the sermon, right? So Jesus, give me what I need from the sermon. But sometimes you think, you know what? What I really need is more patience to deal with this situation. What I really need is the assurance that God loves me because I'm in a dark place and I don't feel very close to him. Sometimes your needs are separate from what we actually talk about in church. And if that's the case, the good news is that when you come forward, you receive Jesus and he will meet whatever need you have. If you need assurance of his love, here it is. He died for you. That's how much he loves you. He lives with you. He loves to be in you. You understand how that works? His patience fills you up and his blood washes you clean. And so sometimes you come and you're just passive and listen to whatever the person's saying to you. You know, listen to the truths from the sermon and say, I need these, Jesus, bring these things and make them real in me. And then other times you're more active. No, 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 no. I need this part of Jesus. I need this, this amount of strength or this joy or this peace or this gentleness or this self-control. And whatever you need, you let Jesus wash you clean and then fill you up. And this is what communion is. This is God saying, it's not just true for everybody who believes, it's true for you. And if you come, you can experience it. Like, why wouldn't we want to do this every week? And so going forward, that's what we're going to do. Every week we're going to experience communion. As long as there's a pastor here who can officiate, who can administer the Lord's Supper, we're going to experience communion. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Like as we do this, as we take this next step forward as a church, there's going to be testimonies, and I want to hear them. I want to hear about your experience as you come and how Jesus has both covered you and filled you and we'll give him all the glory together. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the perfect Savior. Everything that we need points us back to you. You gave your life for us. You shed your blood for us so that you might make us new. And we just can't wait to experience that week in and week out. Help us, even today, to draw closer to you. Fill us with your strength. Fill us with who you are. Preach to us our union with you. Seal it to us so that we would know it's not just true for anyone who believes, but it's true for us. Jesus, help us pastor our own hearts as we get ready to come. Help us to think about the real needs that we have and then to understand how you can meet those needs. And Jesus, call those who haven't yet committed to you. Call them to yourself. Draw them near to you so that they would trust you too and they would experience this amazing salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen.